Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. I'm looking at an image today from El Capitan, and it was shot during 2012, during November, uh, I think mid-November, kind of a bit into that fall season. And uh, really when we showed up, we actually weren't able to get into the Yosemite Park because there was too much snow on the passes before before you entered. And uh, we they had to wait another day for it to be plowed while the, the storm passed. Uh, so once we got into the Yosemite Valley, we spent, I think, about a week there. But this image was uh, really cool and special to me. It was of El Capitan taken right near Last Light. What you notice in the image is a lot of the mountain face is in, is in shadow. But you see just that edge illuminated by the bright cast of sunlight. And that's kind of made me think a little bit about uh, how important it is to pick the right dynamics of light when you're taking a photograph. This photo, even taken on film... Um, and I think that's really a big part of it. Uh, with digital, sometimes you, you take a lot of photographs uh, tr- and then later try and edit down to what might be the best. But I really appreciate film for trying to uh, just sort of prioritize things to make it important to get the right shot and to focus on the lighting and the effect of uh, of the way light is going to affect the photograph or affect the way you feel about the photograph. So I like this uh, low-light image from El Capitan. It was a fun photograph uh, taken with a manual focus film camera way back, 2012. Thanks a lot for listening. You can see more of my work at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. You can check out some of my photo books on Amazon. I think you can look up uh, Billy Newman under the authors section there and see uh, some of the photo books on film, on the desert, on surrealism, on camping. Some cool stuff over there. And I uh, wanted to jump into a couple of the things I've been doing through the month of July and some of the outdoor camping and travel stuff I've been up to. Um, I was going to run down some of that in this uh, podcast today. I wanted to talk about a trip I did out toward eastern Oregon, uh, I think like last or what was a week before last is when I was out in this area. And I was trying to, to get some good uh, observations in for Comet Neowise. I'm not sure if any of you guys got to check that out while it was uh, in its prime viewing section there. I think that was why we had uh, kind of like the new moon before it switched over to being a, a, a gibbous moon or a nearly full moon like it's been the last week or so. But I think, uh, what was it, around like the 15th through the 25th or so of July, there were some pretty good observations uh, to be made of, of Comet Neowise. And um, I guess after after kind of reading about it a little bit, it's not considered a great comet, like Hale-Bopp was, or uh, I think it was, was it Hayutaki in 1996? We haven't had a great comet in a long time. I remember seeing those when I was a kid, though, and that was pretty cool, uh, like uh, watching Hale-Bopp come through for, it seemed like three months or something, you know, that you were just kind of looking at that in the uh, in the, the low corners of the northwestern and western sky as it was kind of cruising across the, the skyline there. I remember that still from, from like third, fourth grade when it was coming through. And I also remember the year before that when, uh, when like straight up in the air you, or, you know, like straight up in the sky at night for, it was only like a week or so. I was a kid, you know, but I remember for that week you could see a real bright two-tailed comet that was going through. I think, I can't remember how to pronounce it. I think it's Hayutaki or I think it's some, it's some Japanese name. Uh, I'm pretty sure. But that was a really cool one. That that one I still remember really clearly. And I, and I was only like, I don't know, seven or something when that like uh, 
when when that comment came through, but I really appreciate getting to make some observations of that one when I was a kid. I missed Haley's comment though back in what eighty seven I think was the last one it uh, it came through, and I probably will be the the few years or that you know that decade or two of of age range that doesn't get to see Haley's comet in their lifetime. So I think uh, I think I was born in eighty eight, of course. So uh, if I make it past a hundred, maybe I'll see it. What is it? Maybe like eighty something years. So it's it's probably not going to come back around until. I think it's like the 2070s or 2080s that I'd have to make it to for uh, to see Haley's Comet again. It'd be fun, but uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll see how future, how the, you know, the future is at that time. Um, but it was really cool to get to see Comet Neo-wise. It was uh, just a little below what would be the the legs and feet of Ursa Major, the Big Dipper or uh, like the big bear as it would kind of be observed. But if you, if you kind of look at the, the dipper part that we're all mostly familiar with, uh, if you kind of consider Ursa Major, the larger bear constellation that it's structured on, uh, if you kind of look down below the dipper is where I was able to make my observations of Comet Neowise. And, um, and over here in the, at the elevation area that I'm at in western Oregon, it's about 200 or 300 feet above sea level. And there's there's kind of a constant problem with haze and with uh, light pollution in this area, and I think it has to do something with, uh, uh, well, like, I mean, of course, you know, the amount of population that's around, and but also uh, it's, there's something about the air quality or about how the air kind of flows out around here that just doesn't ever seem to be as crisp or as dark as you can get up in the mountains, and uh, and really, yeah, it's just a, like a stunning difference when you're able to get out further. Uh, and, and make some uh, some more clear observations. Just you know the the level of magnitude of stars that you're able to reveal just in a dark night is so much more crisp and clear. Uh, it's it's just like a it's a total difference. So it was cool to uh, I, I think I first was able to spot just a little fuzzy bit uh, of a second magnitude uh, version of comet Neowise while I was here in town, but I tried to make a special trip out toward Eastern Oregon out into the desert just to do some camping stuff. But uh, what I wanted to do at the same time was make some good observations and, and also try and get some good photographs of Comet Neowise as it was coming through during its period uh, where you could you could make some, some good sightings of it. But it was cool. So going out to Eastern Oregon, as it got dark, a little past 1030 or so, as you look to the northwest, you could really see co- the comet and its tail spread for a a couple inches in the sky and I was really surprised to notice how little of it you could really make out or see uh, when you're in an area of, of almost any light pollution once you're back in town or once you're in a lower elevation area with some light pollution and haze around it was really difficult to make out in the same way that I could out in the desert or out in the mountains and so I thought that was uh, pretty cool to get to get to see and and uh, get to check out over there but uh, yeah it was a blast getting to do some stuff uh out in eastern Oregon, I went over to the John Day River area, and I was uh, checking out that area. There's a lot of public land out in that area, but there's also some, a lot of private land, too. It's just kind of an interesting area, how it's sort of broken up, and um, it was cool to get to go out, go out to, though. I headed out to Madras, and then I took off and headed over east of there until I ran into the John Day River, and then I was able to use uh, this map that I have to go through and find some of the open off or just the, the open roads that are, uh, you know, the smaller gravel roads that are set up to kind of traverse the back country out there. So I was able to find a few of those that were open and travel around on those for a while. 
And that was pretty cool. I was able to find some dispersed campsites and set up right along the John Day River, uh, which was really cool. It's a beautiful area out there. It's kind of interesting. The John Day River f- flows through uh, this sort of, I guess it would be, I don't know, it's kind of like canyon land, and it's also sort of these rolling grass hills that sort of make up the landscape of of northern, northern and northeastern Oregon. And I think, uh, yeah, as soon as you kind of get a little bit for like a little bit north of Bend is when you get out of the Great Basin area uh, and you start to get into another kind of landscape that seems to stretch up uh, north of the Columbia River up into Washington. I've heard that some of it's uh, from like really old uh, deposits from the river systems and the waterways that were up there and and how uh, there's old, old, old deposits and then and then erosion that's happened from. Uh, those rivers running through the area for such a long time. But uh, but really cool to see kind of the rolling hills and then some of the carved out canyons that go through the John Day uh, River area up there. When I found the campsite I was at, I was pretty far away from everybody, and I was, I was really uh, far away from any uh, substantial town. I think it was near, I don't know, I don't even know what it is. There wasn't anything there when I drove through it. There was a bridge and, and a couple little ranch houses, uh, you know, real ranches, right, like a, a, just a little t- a little a little house, like a little two bedroom house and then a hundred acres of, of cattle <laughs> to deal with. So, uh, it seems, uh, it seems like another life out there. I wonder how they're dealing with, uh, you know, kind of the way of the world as things are this summer, but, uh, it was cool. Yeah. Getting out there, uh, went, uh, to, or yeah, kind of set up my campsite and stuff, have my truck going and that was all pretty easy going. But then I waited till dark after 1030. Yeah. Comet Neowise was really visible up below the big dipper. That was pretty cool to get to see out there in Eastern Oregon. Really bright, really clear. You could almost make out the second tail. I had my binoculars with me, and I think there's some 10 by 42s. And those worked really well to view it, uh, to view the the comet. Um, looked really crisp through the, through the binoculars, and it got really easy to spot most of the night. Even just to the naked eye, it was really easy to spot. It was just like, oh, yeah, it's right there. There's a comet. It's just a, a big wisp in the sky. Uh, so it was really cool to get to view it. What I did is I set up my tripod and I have my camera with me. And so I set it up with a really wide angle. And then I was trying to get some photographs of it as it was, as the comet was sort of uh, coming down to set uh, on the landscape of the hillside, you know, as the hours went on into the night. So I think I, I stayed out until maybe one or two in the morning when the Big Dipper was sort of uh, scooping down a little low onto the horizon. And then at that point, the the place where the comet was dipped below the horizon and then was uh, out of view for the rest of the evening and I think even into the morning. I think by that time when I was photographing it, it wasn't it wasn't visible any longer uh, up in the morning sky. I think they said, you know, at first in early July, you could kind of view it around Capella if you were able to get out early enough, say, three or four in the morning. But as it, as the direction as it was moving, it was kind of creeping up um, pretty quickly, you know, day over day over day, it would kind of move a good chunk through the sky. And uh, in the direction that it was moving, it was moving to be more visible at the nighttime, which really offered uh, more hours of good observation time, which I thought was pretty cool uh, to wait until it was really dark enough in the northwest uh, view of the sky. Probably about 1030 onward is when you're finally able to make out uh, those kind of finer points of light in the sky in that region. Uh, so it was really cool. Set up the tripod, set up the camera, uh, set up some manual focus 
to uh to get it kind of set sharp at night you, know, you can't you can't use autofocus when you're trying to make photographs of the, the night sky and the stars because it just kind of seeks back and forth so you have to set it to manual focus and then uh ring out your um your focus ring to infinity and then just back a little bit you'll notice this every time if you do it it's really frustrating in the dark because you can't really always make it out in, a, in an easy way and, and edit your mistake uh, quickly but if you go all the way to infinity and then take fi pictures there of the night sky you're going to notice that those points of light that are the stars sort of end up a little fuzzy and it's because all the way to infinity for whatever reason just isn't quite in focus at infinity so you have to go to all the way out to infinity and then back it off just a little bit and that'll nearly ensure that most of that part of the image is in focus the whole way and it's difficult even even if you do have uh, an f-stop that's a little bit more tightened out say like an f4 or f6 or something you're still going to get a lot of that that out of focus softness if the focus ring isn't really dialed into the right spot so i try to work on that a little bit and uh yeah dialed in my focus was able to set it up with uh, a reasonable iso to get some images of the night sky and, and pick up some of those finer points of light and then i was able to to take a series of photographs uh, in a few different locations out there in the John Day River Valley, uh, which I thought was really cool. It was, it was uh, pretty to be out there, and it was a nice night, really warm in the River Canyon, and uh, and really remote, too. Like I was mentioning, I think I was the only person out there for a few miles. I saw another another group coming in on a, they had like a little mid-size uh, SUV, and they were going fishing out at a bend in the river a couple miles up from where I was. And so I took my truck down a little further and, and camped out just on the side of the river. It was cool. Nice uh, green river up to the kind of high desert tan rim rock that uh, runs the area around there. Uh, so it was, a, it was a cool evening, cool campsite area. It was a cool spot to check out Comet Neo-wise too. So I tried to check it out uh, up up until, I don't know, what, yeah, one thirty in the morning when I couldn't see it anymore. And then uh, spent the night out there, out in the John Day River area. And then the next morning got up and tried to check out some of the the different roads and stuff that, that went around. You can check out more information at billynewmanphoto.com. You can go to billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support if you want to help me out and participate in the value for value model that uh, we're running this podcast with. If uh, you receive some value out of some of the stuff that I was talking about, you're welcome to uh, help me out and send some value my way through the portal at billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support. You can also find more information there about uh, Patreon and the way that I use it. If you're interested or, or feel more comfortable using Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash billynewmanphoto. Uh, so I worked with those film bodies for a while. Then I, uh, I tried to switch out and I bought... Uh, an, a Sony A7R, which was really interesting. I was I was really interested in what Sony was doing with the mirrorless systems that they're creating, those uh, the interchangeable lens cameras that are out. Uh, so I, I used uh, I used a Sony camera at work to do a bunch of the production photography that I was doing, and then on top of that, I bought uh, the the Sony A7R to work with at home and work with on all the landscape stuff, and that was great. It was uh, you know it's a 36 megapixel camera, which is you know mind blowing and astonishing when you think in comparison to the 4.2 megapixels I was working with with the Nikon D2H. So it was awesome to kind of get that expansion, you know, when working with digital systems. Um, and I love doing that. 
Uh, but there's some limitations to the A7R line, like the original A7R. I liked that camera, and I, I probably shoot with something like that again. It kind of reminded me more of like the Leica model of camera, or it seemed more like a rangefinder kind of camera, the way that it was built, the, the kind of small structure of it and the way that it was designed. It seemed like uh, like it wasn't quite a full DSLR replacement at the time. And I think that's not what they were really aiming for by the design of it and you know by the, the options and by the, the mechanisms of the camera that, and the way that it worked. It seemed like it was kind of supposed to sort of be a, a camera sort of to the side of your professional camera if you're if you're doing professional uh work like it, it was really difficult we shot a couple of weddings with it made some beautiful photographs with it had some great lenses that i worked with but there was a lot of things that I was really lacking on i think i talked about that in earlier episodes of this podcast too where there were there would just be problems with the autofocus where it was great for landscape stuff really slow uh, you know, stuff where you'd have your camera on your tripod and you you know spend some time trying to set the shutter, uh, trying to set up the focal length of the lens and having time to focus the image in a way that you know worked out all right. All of those features really worked out really well. But if you wanted to go through and in a pretty short amount of time hammer out a couple hundred frames that were all that you know you'd all want to be in focus or you'd all want to be uh, you know pretty functional raw images it it just had a harder time getting that sort of stuff done and the way that the buttons were laid out and the way that the menu was laid out you didn't really have the ability to to kind of reach for and grab at those sort of professional and necessary photography features as quickly as, as quickly as you would want to so i learned a lot by working with it it's great to use. I'd probably want a camera like that again, and especially the the A7R2 or the A7 II and the A7S, and now the A7R3. All of those and the A9. Gosh, all of those newer Sony line mirrorless cameras have a lot of interesting features, and they they've also I think tried to directly target some of those limitations that the first A7 A7R line had with them. So I think uh, now there's uh, way more dynamic video features, way more dynamic auto-focusing systems in it that are, I think, quite a bit better. But I still hear there's some seek problems. That's what I had, is that, you know, you'd go to focus the image, and then the autofocus point would just seek forever. It wouldn't grab onto the thing that you needed it to. And uh, and then when you take the photograph, you'd have a blackout, because like, it's, it's a digital representation of the image in the viewfinder instead of a through-the-lens, single-lens reflex-style uh, view of it. You would lose sight of the photograph that you were taking, and then if you were trying to hammer uh, a few frames all at once, it would just it would just stay black that whole time, you know, because it was about a second to process, and then you would try and take maybe two or three frames a second, so you just wouldn't see anything the whole time that you were trying to get the image. And that's where I was noticing that uh, that, that kind of digital model wasn't really what I wanted at the time. Now, in the A9, I think there's like a whole whole feature system that sort of eliminates that whole problem, and now there's just like a blinking band that kind of pops in yellow so that you know that you're taking a frame right then, but it never really loses or goes blackout. Uh, but I was noticing that, you know, with that, I was like, oh, well, I really liked the stuff that I was doing with film, you know, where it was just way more analog and where you could just kind of look right at what you were taking and you could really focus in on the expression and, and the moment that you're capturing in the photograph. And that way you could be more selective about the way that you were taking the photograph. So I wanted to kind of move back toward the DSLR system anyway, and I wanted uh, sort of a, a, I guess, like a more professional feature set where it was weather sealed or where it was, you know, set up where you could hammer out a lot of frames on it for work, uh, all, you know, all the time. And you would just know that it would work all the time. Also, also in addition, the Sony cameras had sort of some issues with the, the battery system that they used on those first couple models. It was pretty small. 
or it, it was, and, and the camera was kind of power intensive because everything was always running a screen, either on the back of the screen for the viewfinder or, or pardon me, for the screen or for the, the viewfinder itself that you look through with your eye. That was always like a, a screen that was running, and so it would run through your battery pretty quickly. And it was kind of an anemic battery system. I think there's a lot of reviews that sort of mention that same problem with it all the time, that it was just sort of an issue that people would run into, especially people that were trying to work a professional job. You know, if you, if you wanted to work with a camera for a whole day, you would just run into a lot of problems, and you'd have to have a lot of batteries to kind of run through it. Um, and so I liked it for a lot of stuff that I did. It worked really well, but but overall it wasn't really a camera system that I was able to use for, for some of the jobs that I was being asked to do. And so that was kind of why, well, okay, if I need to make all this, or you know, if I'm going to try and make some money doing photography, then I'm going to have to switch over to something that I can kind of use more as a tool all the time. Thanks a lot for checking out this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Hope you guys check out some stuff on BillyNewmanPhoto.com. A few new things up there. Some stuff on the homepage. Some good links to other other outbound sources. Some some links to books. Some links to some podcasts. Links to some blog posts. All pretty cool. But yeah, check it out at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the podcast. Talk to you next time.